0: This week on A Lively Experiment.
1: Today I'm announcing that we're pushing back
0: the start date of public schools and our statewide calendar by two weeks. The governor hits the pause button on the opening of public schools this fall. We'll tell you why. And the new state police hotline to report large social gatherings receives hundreds of calls, but few violations. What does the governor say about it? A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr. and I'm proud to support this great program
2: in Rhode Island PBS.
0: Joining us for our reporters' roundtable, Patrick Anderson, State House reporter for the Providence Journal, Boston Globe reporter Amanda Milkovitz, and Target 12 investigator. Tim White. Welcome in, everybody. We appreciate you joining us this weekend. Well, Governor Raimondo on Wednesday confirmed what had been rumored for days. She's putting off the start of school two weeks, now to September 14th. She acknowledged that things have changed since their first announcement two, more than two months ago. She was very optimistic that all the kids would be able to get back in by the end of August. She said that has morphed into the realization that it is, a, in her words, a Herculean effort to be able to get all of the students back. Amanda, you and I were at that uh, briefing on Wednesday. There's an awful lot to unpack, but I think what I took away from it is a lot of the superintendents probably could have told her this two months ago, but also there's some schools that are ready to go. The whole statewide calendar now has become an issue because everybody's in different places.
1: Right, right, right. And, you know, Warwick School Committee already voted that they're just going to do remote only, and she scolded them for that. She said, you didn't even try. You didn't submit a plan, at least, to try the in-person learning. But there's so many different challenges, depending on the on the school and, and the district and uh, where they are in the state. I mean, I'm hearing from teachers who are very concerned about the building ventilation. They're concerned about even though the hybrid means, you know, students will be in the schools at different times, the teachers are going to be exposed to everybody. And they're worried about how that's going to work. Mm-hmm. Some of them have said to me that why don't we just start with remote only learning just to get started and then we could ease into uh, in-person learning if that seemed to work as well. So, so now we have a delay.
0: What did you take from her as we were sitting there watching her and the education commissioner? Was it resignation? Was it real? I mean, what vibe did you get from the governor at yesterday's briefing?
1: Well, like you just said, I think she knew this was coming. um, And in fact, I I think we all knew that this was... Inevitable and maybe she could have made the announcement a couple of weeks ago and there wouldn't have been so much stress and worry um, among teachers and parents and students about are we ready on August 31st. There was definitely a sense of resignation. Um, there was a sense that we had these plans and oh boy, how are we going to juggle this and uh, we're, the decision she's going to make in August 31st, I don't know. Fingers crossed. We'll see what happens.
0: Patrick, the last time we had you on was right after she had made the announcement that everybody would be going back August 31st. There was jubilation in the Anderson household. I'm sure things have changed a little bit. So, again, you and Tim are in the same situation here. You're trying to juggle jobs and kids maybe going to school, maybe not. In Warwick, obviously they're not.
3: Yeah, as a Warwick Public School parent, it was not—it's uh, not been a great week. But but since then, one of the things that, that really seems like has happened is sort of a breakdown in our our federal system of government, where we have the the federal government uh, is not passing anything that would fund any of the improvements that both the state uh, and local districts are look are saying that they need to make the schools safe. Um, I watched the the Warwick meeting uh, the other night, and a lot of it uh, came down to money and the fact that they said they couldn't afford to ventilate the schools, repair things, come up with the number of fans and air conditioners and hire custodians. So these are not insurmountable things that you couldn't do if you funded them, if you made them a priority, if you had been working on them for close to five months, as we've, we've known that this is going to, act, going to be an issue. But the other thing I, I took from that meeting is it, it didn't appear that they had done much. Um, and while they have been studying the issue, and I think this is probably a case for a lot of the schools, they haven't really taken the plunge because they've been in part waiting for help from the
0: federal government, waiting for help from the state government financially, that hasn't come but didn't the governor say a couple of months ago and i've been to a lot of these briefings didn't she say we're getting a chunk of money as apart from the, the coronavirus federal 1.25 billion specifically for schools where did that money go or was it not enough well there is and there is some money but the the school districts are saying it's it's
3: not enough and they're you know we're dealing with the past funding because we've been we've been at this for five months so there's the money from last year that's already gone out the door. Um, some of it has been used to plug the state budget hole that we just went through, and then we're we're looking ahead for another year, and that money is not, according to the districts, and and it, not going to cover it. Going trying to get us to next summer, and that's that's what they're looking at. And the state has also held back some of the cash that they have from that. Federal first federal stimulus bill because they don't they are looking at a, a state budget hole and think they might have to plug more in so they are they are not releasing all of the funds to the
0: schools that I think they have um, according to the districts. Tammy, you're brushing up on your math. Do you do you understand how to teach your kids math? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, well, math actually was a pretty good subject for me, but that is the problem uh, with you know, with all of this is you, you have your remote learning, you do for a lot of parents, you require someone in the house to act as a as a TA, as a as a teacher's assistant. And I think what you're hearing from a lot of parents is frustration, because many school districts, including where we are here, uh, they required that parents announce to the school district what their decision was going to be in terms of, hey, are you going to keep your kids at home? Are you going to send them to school before the state even released their recommended guidelines from the Rhode Island Department of Health. uh, And that is kind of aggravating to a a, a lot of parents. you know. And when the governor moved back the two two weeks, uh, the start of school, that also moved the deadline for the Rhode Island Department of Health. And I think what you're hearing from a lot of teachers, I interviewed Bob Walsh uh, four weeks ago, who predicted uh, in that interview that all of Rhode Island was gonna go to full distance learning. Um, What you're hearing is, look, you're only giving a two-week window from that decision to, to the start of school since you moved the goalpost, is it going to be like March again where it's like, oh, well, we're all distance learning, and now let's all scramble to figure out how to uh, set up remote learning in your households, and uh, you have to figure out daycare. What you hear from, as, as Amanda said, you hear from teachers, you hear from, uh, again, Bob Walsh said this, would it be more prudent just to pull the trigger on distance learning right now, even though there are a lot of challenges with that, uh, which I understand. So you can properly prepare for that. And then as the numbers go down, hopefully, or a vaccine might come out uh, later in the year, more likely next year, uh, then you can start to ease into a hybrid or into a full in-person thing. This way, it just kind of feels like, um, you know, we are setting we could potentially be setting ourselves up to be in the same situation that we were in in March.
3: Yeah, I mean, the, the question, Idri, you're, you're balancing what the value of having in-person teaching is to the kids um, you know, versus the risk. And I don't, I don't think that that is not a calculation that, that folks are, are really having a, a easy time getting getting their hands around. Um, And the other question is, can you switch? If you start distance learning, are we committing to distance learning until the end of next year? Once you begin that path, it could be really difficult to then, in the middle of the year, while everyone is trying to teach on Zoom, go back into the classroom. Um, I mean, I guess the thing that's really struck me is that those, those discussions have really been subsumed by these very practical considerations about money and um, and the building condition and these sort of things that maybe could have been addressed so we could focus on the real core decision and analysis of, of whether it's safe and whether there is a benefit to, to going back that outweighs the risk.
2: but if you listen to the, if you listen to the teachers, uh, the educators on this one. Uh, or at least most of them. And I think, you know, the the NEA has done a poll. I don't know if the AFT has done it. Uh, But from the bits and pieces we can get from that poll, the majority of teachers are leaning towards distance learning. And a huge chunk of that, of course, is health concerns. And there are a lot of older teachers and they're reticent about going back into a classroom. But I, I think the body language that you're getting from all of that is, Patrick, that they think it is easier to do the other way around to start with uh, distance learning and then get back into the classroom as opposed to just springing the distance learning on with short notice.
1: Well, it's great that we would talk about, we. you could start with distance learning, but the idea that eventually we would move into some type of in-person um, teaching in the fall. Meanwhile, the colleges are looking at we're going to have kids off campus by the fall. After Thanksgiving, nobody's returning because we're very concerned about the flu and any uh, any type of second wave of COVID-19. So why would our public schools be any different? Uh, you know, the teachers have said, look, we did the distance learning. It wasn't great, but at least we know how to do it and we can get that started. Why not let us start the school on time? But Practically speaking, as Patrick was saying, the issue is we need to retrofit our schools. Can we afford to retrofit our schools in order to deal with this pandemic?
0: The final point is, and look, we've talked about the disparity across the state. Westerly, Block Island, Central Falls, Cumberland, it's it's all different. And as rosy a picture as the governor painted about distance learning last spring, in some of those inner city uh, districts, it was very difficult. Some kids didn't have laptops. They're doing homework on their phone. And so isn't that a problem that you would have thought the last five months? I agree with you, Tim, if, you, if we've been concentrated on the distance learning are those kids going to get left behind for another year? I think that's, that's the concern that a
2: lot of people have when you look at the statewide picture. And I think the answer in some cases is, unfortunately, yes. Um, there's disparity in education in good years. There's definitely disparity in education in this situation.
3: In all, the, all the evidence, all the studies that I've seen have, have not pointed to good things for distance learning in terms of how effective it's been and, and what it's done for the gaps we have
0: inequities that only makes them worse. All right, a week ago the governor announced a large gathering task force hotline. Go right to the state police. If you see uh, anybody violating her social distancing gatherings of more than 15 people, call them. Lo and behold, state police got more than 400 calls, Uh, 56 they responded to. There were no violations that warranted a $500 fine. Uh, Tim, you and I have covered uh, the state police a very long time. I know she says this was Colonel Manny's idea. I I wonder, this is me, some people think this is a great idea to put a little teeth in it. I wonder whether this is the best use of state police resources, but that's
2: open to debate. She said we wanted to at least try this. Well, I can tell you uh, anecdotally, the Karens of the world love it. (laughs) Um, They have a hotline they can call, and they get right to the state police to call on their neighbors for having a barbecue out back. Uh, but joking aside, you know, I talked uh, to as Amanda does, um, and I'm I'm wondering if she's heard the same thing. To a lot of folks in law enforcement, in uh, you know, not just the officials, the brass, but the, you know, the the troopers and the officers that are on the ground. Those are the ones I like to connect with frequently, and they cannot stand this uh, order. They they uh, this is not why they took the job. You you obviously have to roll with the punches as it goes along but you hear from a lot of police officers and I talked to some in Massachusetts with particularly with the um, travel restrictions coming Rhode Islanders coming into Massachusetts I talked to some troopers up there and they're like I I just there's no way to enforce this it 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 is uh, beyond possible for us to do that and some of them frankly said I'm not I'm just not going to do it I have other things to do so practically speaking with this hotline, uh, whether or not is, it is a good use of uh, resources to be running around and checking every every party that's out there, um, I think we're gonna see an initial you know, surge of that happening, but I do have to wonder if those numbers are gonna start to trail off, and not because the summer is ending, but because law enforcement is gonna be a little bit more choosy about which of those calls that they go to, and keep in mind, I think when this was reported on, um, and I don't have the story in front of me. There was something like 400 calls. I'm sure that's gone up since uh, when the mm. show will air. And there was just only a, a handful of, um, you know, citations or whatever it was uh, violations that happened in that time. I think it was which something- means a lot of wasted time. Right. That's my point. I think you know they had a high volume but a very low uh, set of violations. Amanda.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. In fact, it was funny watching you um, question the governor about this repeatedly, like really, is this a great use of, of uh, state police time? And they're not going to tell her this isn't a great idea. Um, and I understand where she's coming from. I mean, we have this this rule and you know, you can go anywhere and you can see gatherings. I mean, it's like summer is here and it's you know, aside from occasionally you see masks, people are really kind of pushing, pushing their luck. There are backyard barbecues, there are parties, there are bigger gatherings happening. But the question is in this environment, do the police really want to encounter the public in this way? Especially since there really isn't a lot of teeth here. Are they truly going to give, say, forty people five hundred dollar fines? No, they're not gonna well-
0: Well, and Patrick, that was the point I was trying to make with the governor yesterday. In this time of strained community police relationship, is this what you want to inject your premier law enforcement into potentially volatile situations?
3: Probably not. But I think I think what the governor is trying to do is more of a signaling exercise. I don't think that she necessarily expects or anyone expects that there's going to be significant prosecutions or enforcements or or police are really gonna be um, going door to door and, and dragging people out of buildings. I think her thinking on it is that if this puts doubt in anyone's mind that they can have a kegger down in Narragansett um, or puts the, puts the thought that they shouldn't go out and, and, and go to this party, then that might be worth it. Even though if in, as a, from a law enforcement perspective, it doesn't make much sense um, and, and from a policing perspective, it, it doesn't make much sense. It, it might have an
2: indirect public health benefit uh, by encouraging people to stay in. I, I think Patrick is 100% right. This is a marketing exercise by the governor's office. I suppose the only question I'm posing is down the road as these numbers potentially, and maybe they won't, but as the numbers trail off, is that marketing effective?
0: Mm, we shall see. Tim, let me stay with you. You had an interesting story late last month about fraud. What a surprise that people would have fraudulent unemployment claims. But there was a ripple effect on that because then they shut down people with legitimate claims. And your your story said $8.6 million. Where are we now in the last two weeks in terms of getting up and running
2: again? Because didn't it freeze some people out of getting benefits? It freezed a lot of people out. And the challenge for us is trying to figure out just how many the Rhode Island Department of Labor and Training will not release the numbers of uh, potential fraud in terms of actual people, and those have been frozen out. And they claim that's because the FBI is involved in the investigation as well as the Rhode Island State Police. So there's an ongoing criminal probe into this. So they say they can't release that information. But we did get the glimpse in that story that it's $8.6 million in fraudulent claims, by the way, Jim, that have been paid out. So the bad Mm -hmm. guys got that money, right? Right. And uh, Scott Jensen, the director of DLT, told me that that number is uh, lower than what the real figure is because they're still going through the process and determining which claims are fraudulent and which claims are legitimate. And it's these that really hurt over here. The legitimate claims are getting frozen. And we're hearing from people, and I'm sure Patrick and Amanda are hearing from them as well, there are folks that are on unemployment and then all of a sudden their claims stop because the computer system triggered something to say, hey, this... This claim is a little fishy, and most of the time, those claims that get stopped are uh, benefits are paid, uh, the people who choose to have their benefits paid through reloadable debit cards. Um, That's something we've noticed. Uh, You can get them at corner stores. That is a perfectly valid way for people to get their benefits, and it's also uh, usually uh, folks who are down on their luck or who have trouble navigating or accessing uh, computers to, to interact with DLT use that system. So the people that are, uh, really need those unemployment benefits the most are more likely to see their benefits frozen because of how they get paid.
3: Yeah. And wh- what we're hearing a lot of is that the compared to other states, Rhode Island's unemployment system has been working fairly well. But if you get caught in this net of, uh, of a problem, if you are caught uh, if something flags you as a potential fraud risk or just anything goes wrong um, in, in your application. The volume right now is, is so high that they really can't deal with it. And once you get stuck, uh, we've heard from people who just can't get out and, and cannot get their claim uh, processed, while other people have just an incredibly fast and, and easy time of it so it, it really creates these contrasts i guess the only other thing i I'd, I'd say about it is um the, the the volume of money that's gone out through unemployment claims w- when we had the, the the $600 bonus payments is so high um i in, in a way it's almost surprising there wasn't more fraud i mean maybe it's way more than than 8.6 we don't have the final number but i mean we're, they just in the $600 payments alone it it was uh, over a billion to Rhode Islanders in those couple of months. So the amount of money that, that hit the streets um, from this program was, was so high um, that it's, it's not surprising that there was some degree of fraud. Amanda?
1: Yeah, I actually have a question for Tim. Tim, any, is there um, any idea about how they were able to game the system this way?
2: Yeah, um, so we're learning a little bit more about uh, where people's identities, uh, how their identities were obtained, um, and it is one of the leading, you know, factors that we're seeing is you remember the Equifax breach uh, two or three years ago, I think it was, uh, where, uh, uh, you know, millions of people had their identities uh, taken through Equifax, and they're finding a common thread with a lot of people who uh, – the way it works is, you suddenly get a letter in the mail saying, "Hey, your benefits are uh, have been approved, and this is how much you're going to get." And you you go, "Wait a minute! Did I just get laid off and not know it?" No, you are the victim of fraud. And uh, a lot of those people who received those letters were also uh, the victims of an Equifax breach. So, what investigators uh, have told me on background. Is that, you know, the bad guys, a few years ago, they they stole uh, people's identities, maybe largely through Equifax, and they've been sitting on it for a few years. And as Patrick points out, as soon as the $600 a week started coming out, that was a, a great opportunity to then use those social security numbers and information to, uh, you know, to game the system. And obviously... Uh, Final thought, Jim, this isn't just a Rhode Island problem. This is a massive national story.
0: When that Equifax thing came out, Tim, I remember talking on this program, as as worrying as that was, I thought, well, you know what? If they got 25 million people, they got a lot of people to get to, to get to me. Now they're getting, you know, I said that glibly, obviously now there there are issues with getting to those people. All right. Let's, uh, I have one other thing I want to get to, but let's start with outrageous. I don't want to short you guys. Let's begin with Amanda. And Amanda, I didn't give you the proper hello. This is your debut. On lively, although you've been in this market with all of us for like a hundred years, I appreciate you coming on. Do you have an outrage or a kudo for us?
1: Oh geez. Um, all right. So this is this is a small thing, but but it, it hurt us here at, at the Boston Globe. Our office had this interesting sculpture public art piece outside the uh the building, the uh, where the CIC is located, the Wexford Innovation Center. And of course, nobody's been there in a very long time. It was um how do I describe this? It was huge. It was massive. it was filled with laundry detergent bottles and rubber tubes, and it looked like something. So a giant fisherman pulled up out of Narragansett Bay and sat there. and it was strange and it was provocative. And uh, it burned <laughs> for somebody or you know, because it didn't burn itself. Um, it went up in flames around two o'clock in the morning. A security officer walked by and um, rest in peace giant ball of laundry detergent. I did walk by and see that someone has stuck a brand new bottle in where it, where the sculpture used to be. So, sounds
0: like a uh, sounds like a risky project gone bad. Yeah. Patrick Patrick, what do you have this week? Well I, a lot
3: of people are, are watching over in East Providence where the uh, Metacomet golf course is is being um, pro- is proposed for redevelopment. Um, and while I don't know anything of the, the details of what's being proposed exactly um, in terms of the design, and maybe it's terrible, in, in the time where we've made housing such a priority, a public policy priority, the idea that um, folks are screaming to preserve a golf course in the middle of an urban area um, is a little odd. Um, and so I'll just leave it at that.
2: All right, Tim, what do you have this week? Well, first, a kudos to Amanda. I didn't realize this was her first appearance on A Lively Experiment. How about and that, huh? That's great. Yeah, it's nice a, big an big honor, big. To, honor to be on here with uh, Well, if you
0: have that and you've had
2: a, uh, a cartoon done on you by Charlie Hall, then you've really made it in writing And I have. Um, so, um, so outrage is going to – I'm going to echo um, my opening thought here. I think uh, hearing from a lot of parents, including in this very household, uh, the aggravation of being asked by uh, a school district to make a, a, such an Im- critical and important decision as to how the education of your children is going to be carried out in the public schools uh, by uh, asking them to hit a, a very early deadline on that decision, even prior to when the public health officials are going to make their recommendations. Obviously, uh, moms and dads and caregivers don't have as, you know... Uh, we're not as knowledgeable about the the health impacts of either sending your kids back to school or or keeping them at home. So why is our deadline any earlier than than the professionals?
0: All right. We have just about three minutes left. Patrick, let me go back to you. You've been following this issue with the mail ballots. The G, the um, a federal judge eased the requirements on, for signatures. The GOP is taking this. They've gone to federal court. They want to go to the Supreme Court. I think that's a long shot. I think the bottom line is we're probably looking at a primarily mail ballot election anyway, right? Where does the process stand on that?
3: Well, actually, the, the conventional wisdom um, is that they have the GOP has a very good chance based on what the Supreme Court has done across the country, um, and we, we, this is a situation where you know by the time people are seeing this, a decision might come out because we're watching today. Um, I, or potentially tomorrow, one or the two days. Right, we're
0: taping on a Thursday morning.
3: Yeah, so it, so, but uh, th- this could already be out. But um, in other states, the Supreme Court has been very hesitant to change the election laws uh, at all. And in in this case, um, th- there's a lot of confidence that they'll do the same thing and um, keep the signature requirement, the, the witness requirements that make you, if you're gonna vote by mail, um, have someone see two people see it and sign the, the envelope. Um, but you know we we could still have even with that there there could still very well be a primarily mail ballot election. Um, I think in in some ways Rhode Island is in a in a better situation than other states just because of its size. And um, in, in some places, when we're looking at the presidential race coming up for you know, in the presidential vote in November, it could be a week. Uh, we don't know how long it's going to take to get results um, if most of the ballots are coming
0: in by mail. And then, Amanda, there's the the issue of uh, the Postal Service, which is having deep cuts, and there's an issue federally. But that's a big issue. If you can't get the mail ballots into the board of canvassers, that's going to be problematic.
1: Right. And, of course, we're looking at, um, you know, the poll workers as well. So we have the issue of the mail ballots and people being able to uh, get the witnesses and send in their ballot and have the, you know, the Postal Service actually deliver it. And then there's the issue of the postal, uh, the people who are working the polls, who are an older crowd.
0: The average age is about 87. Right.
1: And they're trying to recruit younger people to work at the polls because this is going to be a problem.
2: Tim, you want the last 30 seconds on this? Yeah, just a weird thought on all of this. Um, You know, we do a lot of polling at WPRI. And I think one of the challenges for uh, political pundits and for pollsters across the country, uh, is going to be, uh, polling after this election. And here's what I mean. Uh, it, you base your polls on turnout and you ba- and that's how you wait, you know, uh, how many people you expect to show up at the polls. All that is out the window because we're going to see so many people use mail ballots, e- even, you know, even if the GOP, which as Patrick says, uh, you know, the plaintiffs in this case will, will tell you they're very uneasy about this going to the Supreme court. They think they're going to lose. Uh, it's still going to be a lot of mail ballots, and that's going to throw all of that off.
0: All right, folks, why am I surprised with this panel that it went very quickly? Patrick and Amanda, welcome. Hope we'd have you back. And Tim, good to see you. It's been a while. Thank you for coming. And folks, come back next week. You never know what's going to happen between now and next week, but we'll have it covered for you as A Lively Experiment continues. Have a great weekend. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.